the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to What a Life. I'm Paul Batura. I'm delighted to have as my guest today James Rosen, uh, author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. And so you'll uh, catch him on TV. And uh, you have to pick up this book. I'm telling you, we've had a terrific conversation. We've only just gotten started. James, let me jump back into, I want to get into the confirmation hearings and and, and obviously the, the career that led to that. But um, one of the most profound stories that you tell in the book is his senior uh, exam. I, that might, that's probably not the right term, with um, the history professor who asked him about the most transformative moment in history. Can you tell that story? Yes. Uh, this occurred when um, um, young Nino Scalia was uh, finishing up his senior year at Georgetown University, a Jesuit institution from which Scalia graduated as valedictorian top in his class. Uh, and he was going through oral examinations, and um, his history professor, uh, Wilk, Dr. Wilkinson, asked him a question which, when it escaped the, the professor's lips, struck young Antonin Scalia as a softball because how could he get it wrong? All he had to do was come up with some plausible answer. He was mistaken. The, the question put to him was, what is the most important event in the history of, of humankind? And Scalia racked his brain, and he thought about things like the Battle of Thermopylae and, 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 and other obscure events. Um, and and he, he finally divested himself of an answer. And the professor said, no, Mr. Scalia, the Incarnation. Mm. And it was a, a, a real eye-opener for the future justice. And as he later discussed it, it served as a reminder for him that he can never fully separate and should never seek fully to separate um, his, um, his work from his Catholic faith. Now, this became tricky once uh, Antonin Scalia became a judge and then later a justice on the Supreme Court, because he, he was very careful, he always said, um, that he never wanted to uh, find himself grafting or imposing his Catholic beliefs onto his interpretations of the Constitution and given statutes, uh, because um, the texts of the Constitution and these given statutes were usually pretty clear, and um, they were not um, susceptible to uh, matters of religious faith. They were to be administered uh, by an honest judge with a, with a healthy regard for the limited role that courts and judges should enjoy in a democratic system. Um, in fact, when one of uh, Justice Scalia's dearest friends, uh, a longtime colleague in academia, published an op-ed in 2007 accusing Justice Scalia of doing just that, of allowing his Catholic beliefs to um, seep into his, his jurisprudence, it caused a rift between the two men that endured for five years until they patched things up. The way Scalia would put it, Paul, was that there is no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. But he said the closest we could come to a Catholic hamburger 
would be a hamburger that is made perfectly. <laughs> so good. I, <clears throat> one thing that I've wondered, and uh, I, you don't get into this in the book, at least not in this edition. Uh, obviously, uh, Justice Scalia died in 2016, and uh, by a matter of seniority, um, Justice Alito was given the opportunity to write the Dobbs decision. And that would have, I presume, assuming Justice Chief Justice Roberts didn't want to write it, uh, it would have been given to Justice Scalia. How different do you think the Dobbs decision would have been argued uh, and, and argued? But uh, you know, how different would the opinion in Dobbs be if Justice Scalia had been the been the one authoring that opinion? So I'm going to dodge this question. Uh, I hope artfully uh, on citing two grounds. One is that I'm often asked um, in interviews to promote this book uh, what Justice Scalia would have said about event or person X or Y that's happening now, January 6th, um, President, former President Trump, um, you name it. And um, for the reasons we've already discussed in our interview, um, the, the, the nature of, of Justice Scalia's contribution to American law and society, his insistence on originalism, is his insistence that um, that latter-day figures do not graft onto existing texts that have been ratified and enacted in a democratic system uh, their own latter-day policy preferences. Um, this causes me to to um, retreat from uh, ascribing to Antonin Scalia um, thoughts or opinions about current events or personalities some seven years after Scalia passed from the scene. Um, I will also dodge on, on this ground, which is that in volume two of this book, which will be entitled Scalia's Supreme Court Years, 1986 to 2016, uh, I will have a lot more on uh, Justice Scalia's jurisprudence concerning abortion. Um, he took part in a number of uh, very uh, important landmark cases, uh, Webster, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, others, um, and uh, suffice to say, um, that his jurisprudence on abortion and on Roe v. Wade might have evolved over time. Um, that's as much as I want to say about it now. In the current book that's out now, Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986, in the portion that deals with his Senate confirmation hearing, there are some very interesting exchanges that take place between um, the nominee, Antonin Scalia, and the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, Joe Biden. In fact, this book is the first uh, occasion where someone has really gone back and examined in depth Joe Biden's performance during uh, the Scalia confirmation process. And the future president really didn't acquit himself very well. Uh, at different times, he had to apologize, withdraw questions. Uh, he followed dead ends and at one point said to the nominee, Antonin Scalia, seated before him, uh, and this was August 1986, Judge, forget the Constitution. Let's talk politics. Which, of course, is advice that no Senate-confirmed nominee would be well advised to follow during their confirmation hearing, to forget the Constitution and right. talk politics. But I will have more to say about uh, the evolution in Scalia's thinking on Roe v. Wade in Volume 2. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, and I'm going to jump ahead to that, because I was obviously intrigued by that uh, uh, visit of that uh, confirmation hearing. It, it struck me reading that and reviewing that, that, tell me if you agree with this, that uh, then Senator Biden seemed, uh, he certainly seemed worried uh, that uh, Roe was on shaky constitutional grounds. And so he kept pressing him, as many 
uh, pro-abortion senators do today on stare decisis. And, you know, surely you're not going to overrule because it's been long term precedent. Did you get that impression from reviewing that that Biden knew that it was poorly decided in 73 and that it was only a matter of time? Um, certainly, Senator Biden expressed disagreement with Roe versus Wade uh, immediately in the aftermath of the issuance of the decision in 1973. Biden's own, Mr. Biden's own feelings about abortion have undergone uh, something of, of an evolution over that time span. But the sense I got from reading the transcript and watching some of the videos of Scalia's confirmation hearing in 1986 was not that Joe Biden believed uh, Roe to be uh, predicated on on shaky constitutional ground. I think he, by that point, 1986, had fully embraced uh, the um, unenumerated um, Hmm. theory that uh, there are aspects to the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments that create a right to privacy and which uh, in which, uh, from which flow the rights to to um, to have an abortion um, and, and the legalization of abortion across the country. Uh, I think he had bought into it by that point. Um, what he was trying to do was to uh, smoke Scalia out, so to speak, and get him to comment one way or the other on how he would rule. And the stalking horse for that um, is really uh, there are two of them. One is Marbury v. Madison from 1803, which was the the Supreme Court decision that established very early on in our republic that the Supreme Court gets the last word on reviewing the constitutionality um, of, of a given law. Uh, would, Scalia, would Scalia at least say, I, I would never overturn Marbury versus Madison? And again, Scalia had prepared for that in his, in his sort of murder board sessions. Um, and, you know, he, he basically, Arlen Specter was the, the senator who asked about it, uh, said and gave an answer to the effect that... Um, Look, if you really think that I'm the type of person who would come in and have and, and overturn Marbury v. Madison, um, then I can't be a great nominee. Words to that effect, without saying no, I wouldn't. And then the other stalking horse is Brown v. Board of Ed, the 1954 Supreme Court ruling from the Warren Court um, that um, that held segregated uh, school facilities to be unconstitutional. So it's a landmark mm-hmm. ruling striking down segregation. Would you uphold that? Would that be subject to your perhaps overturning it? And again, these were tricky questions, but Scalia maintained the view that if he answered any of these questions, let alone Roe v. Wade, then if he were confirmed to the Supreme Court, if he had advocates standing before him advocating on behalf of a particular point of view or law or what have you, uh, if he had already taken a position in his Senate confirmation hearing, let alone as a condition of confirmation, that he'd be willing to strike this down or uphold that, then he would essentially be tilting the playing field for those advocates standing before him as a judge or in a justice. So mm. that's how he declined to answer those questions. Um, but Joe Biden uh, was sort of like the broken clock who was right twice a day. <laughs> he did have some insightful moments in those transcripts. And again, this is something I'm going to be revisiting in volume two. Well, thanks. Thanks for digging into that. That's interesting. I This is just an aside. I once got kicked off a train because of Arlen Specter. I was with my girlfriend and, and trying to get on that train between buildings and he needed to get to the floor for a vote and they kicked us off. So I've never forgotten that. This is, this is part of your patriotic service. To this the is, yeah, this is, uh, we're talking with James Rosen. I'm Paul Batura. This is what a life. Uh, appreciate you listening today. What a delightful conversation. James, um, talking about uh, a, there's a seeming contradiction. It's not a contradiction, but it's a bit of a mystery that you address in the book that, there have been some people who said 
um, Justice Scalia uh, had been gaming and the system to try and be the uh, Supreme Court nominee and uh, had always wanted to be a nominee. Other people said, well, no, that's impossible. But you uncovered uh, an amazing conversation with a priest who uh, had a, a take on this that seems unassailable. Yeah, you can read this in the book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, uh, just published. So uh, Scalia served 29 terms on the Supreme Court. Um, he was no stranger to controversy, but there's not a hint of scandal associated with his career. Um, he was a devout Catholic. He and his wife, Maureen, lived devout, exemplary Catholic lives, and they raised nine very accomplished children together. Um, there was, however, at the time I started my work on the book, one remaining mystery associated with Scalia's life, and that is the question of how early on in his life the ambition to become a Supreme Court justice began to burn within him. And the justice's most ardent defenders, his family, his clerks, his uh, supporters in academia and elsewhere, have always been leery of attributing this ambition to him too early in his life, left to contribute to a kind of false narrative that was promulgated by the two previous hostile biographies uh, that I call the careerist narrative. The idea that Scalia was uh, ceaselessly, in whatever government job he held, in all of the which required him uh, to produce legal opinions, uh, opinions as to the constitutionality of this or that, um, that he was always tailoring his work to please uh, more powerful men around him. Uh, sometimes uh, these were asserted to be Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney in the Ford era, uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, in the Reagan era, uh, that he would tailor his opinions to try and curry favor with these people who could advance him. Um, and that was false. I interviewed so many people who worked with him in all different phases of his life and career, and they all agreed that, in fact, the man was fearless um, and quite frequently uh, came up with legal opinions that not only were unpopular to his bosses, but were unpopular with himself. Uh, he held it as the mark of an honest judge if you occasionally produced opinions whose outcomes you personally didn't agree with, and, and that happened a lot with, with Justice Scalia. Uh, but the, he himself would always say when he was asked, well, how early on did you want to become a, a judge or a justice? Oh, not until I was offered the chance to be a judge did I ever think about it. Uh, and I think he was either counseling modesty here or discouraging further inquiry. But in 2020, I interviewed someone who had never been interviewed before about his long relationship with Justice Scalia. This was his classmate from Xavier High School uh, and, a, and a friend of decades uh, who's still with us in his late 80s, uh, who is a priest, an Opus Dei Catholic priest named Father Bob Connor. Uh, he was just Bob Connor when Scalia first got to know him at Xavier High School in Manhattan. The two of them lived in Queens and commuted. And these, they were friends. They were tight. I mean, they played hoops together. They were in the marching band together. There's a picture of the marching band in my book where you can see Bob Connor. Uh, Scalia even set Bob Connor up on a date on one occasion, and the two of them brought girls to dances together. Uh, so they knew each other quite well. By the time they're 23 years old, they've, they've sort of drifted a little bit, still friendly, but not seeing each other too often. And as Bob Connor relates this story to me, and I, I confirmed with him that he had, that Father Connor, I should say, he never told this story to anyone else. He was never interviewed by the FBI. He was never interviewed by any of the previous authors. Um, that, um, well, come 1959, when the two of them are 23 years old, Bob Connor makes the decision to drop out of medical school and travel to Rome to study Opus Dei with its founder. 
Mrs. Connor, his mother, is distraught. She thinks her son is throwing his future away, so she summons two men to the Connor family home in Queens who she thinks can talk sense into her errant son. One is a Jesuit priest named Father Morrison who comes and goes without any discernible effect on Bob's future plans. Uh, and then, as Father Connor recounted this to me in 2020, and I, his, he was sharp of memory and locution, I consider him an unimpeachable witness on this matter, and I consider the story he tells to be definitive uh, and, and dispositive in answering this question of this mystery of when Antonin Scalia first desired to, to, joint, to sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, he's sitting, Bob Connor, on the second story of the Connor family home, which was on Downey Road in Jamaica, Queens, on the south side of the street. He's actually sitting in his brother's room. And again, Scalia was well known to this family. Scalia was so brilliant in high school that he appeared on a number of TV and radio programs, debate shows, quiz shows, and was written up in newspapers for how well he did on these programs. Unfortunately, no films or videos or, or tapes survive. But Bob Connor's own dad used to say to his son, oh, Bob, you should have seen Scalia. He really gave it to them this week. I mean, Antonin Scalia as a teenager had fans. Um, and he shows up, summoned by Mrs. Connor, uh, knocks on the door, and Bob Connor is stunned, sitting in his own brother's room on the second floor there on Downey Road in Queens, to see Nino Scalia walk in. And Scalia raises his palms upward and says, what are you doing? And as Father Connor recounted the story to me, he said, I'm going to go to... Rome, and I'm going to study Opus Dei. And I asked Father, Father Bob, the devout Catholic that Scalia was at that time, did he seem to evince any knowledge of what Opus Dei was? He said, I explained it to him, that we in Opus Dei, we find the sanctity in everyday life, everyday thing. Scalia nodded and said, sounds good to me. And again, this has never been published before until now, until Scalia rise to greatness. Bob Connor says to his friend Nino, what are you doing? And Scalia says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Father Bob says, how are you going to, or he was just Bob Connor at the time, how are you going to do that? And Scalia and, and Father Bob said to me, James, he had a job lined up already. He was, had just finished his second year of Harvard Law. Um, he had a job lined up at a law firm in Ohio. I can't remember the name. I said, Jones Day. He said, yes, that was it, Jones Day in mm -hmm. Cleveland, which is where Antonin Scalia spent the first six and a half years of his professional life after graduating from Harvard Law. He said, this law firm has a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. Wow. And I said, Father Bob, did that strike you as comical or fanciful that he said this? I'm going to go. I'm going to the Supreme Court. He said, no, no, no. Nino was driven. I said, did he seem to regard it as a divine calling? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor put it to me was, this was a convergence of two transcendent moments. Here you had two young men starting out really at the dawn of their adult lives, plotting their futures, and one asks the other, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to God, in essence. And then the other says back, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. I get chills telling you, wow. because um, it's never been reported before. It comes from an absolutely unimpeachable source, and it answers once and for all the question of how early on in life Antonin Scalia wanted to go to the Supreme Court. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, used to say that he knew from the age of five that he wanted to be a cartoonist. Some people, Paul, are just blessed um, by God with the, the knowledge of where they are headed and where they want to go. Uh, and uh, Antonin Scalia understood from an early age what the Supreme Court is and why he belonged there. And all of us are better off that he did. Mm. You know, this is one of the reasons why your book is so good, because it's not just factual. You put so much heart, and obviously you're, you're telling stories which grab us and explain uh, all kinds of uh, mysteries of people. Um, you talk about having uh, 
he had the ability or the gift of knowing what he wanted to do. Let me ask you, I mean, how old were you when you just decided or thought, yeah, this, I want to devote my life to writing, to reporting, uh, to journalism. Hmm. Well, uh, my original ambition was to be Charles Schultz, to be a cartoonist. Ah. Actually, to be more specific, Neil Adams, uh, who died last year at the age of 80 and who was the greatest comic book illustrator of all time and, in my view, one of the greatest American artists in history. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to be a comic book illustrator like Neil Adams. Um, I was dissuaded from this from my parents, who uh, made some goat noises about perhaps feeding myself and, and supporting myself. So uh, I grew up um, in the 70s, and I had came to admire Dan Rather, who just looked so good and uh, you know, was going toe-to-toe with presidents of the United States and globe-trotting in his trench coat and everything, and I thought, that looks great. And I also became an admirer of Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, reading the Fear and Loathing books and uh, the idea of traveling and reporting just uh, stuck with me. But I took a detour. Um, I, I fell under the peculiar notion that um, when, because I worked in local politics in New York for a little while, and I thought to myself, gosh, why be Dan Rather when you can be George H.W. Bush or James A. Baker III? In, uh, instead of pursuing crumbs of information, being dependent on it, you could be the person sprinkling the crumbs of information. But once I worked in government, I realized that uh, my job as, as a, someone who was working on the communication side in government was really to amplify the, the viewpoints of other people. And I might not always agree with what they had to say. So I followed the lead of my roommate at the time, a childhood friend, Rich Eisen, well-known uh, from the NFL channel today, um, and who, who went back to grad school uh, and went to the Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism program uh, to go do TV news. And so I followed him by about two years into that program. It was a great program. I recommend it today. Uh, I graduated with a master's degree in journalism from Medill School of Journalism. I did local small market TV in Illinois and elsewhere. Got my big break from Britt Hume at Fox News in 1999. Spent almost two decades at Fox. Um, and, uh, you know, all along, uh, wrote these books. Um, and, uh, the, the John Mitchell book we discussed earlier, the Watergate book took 17 years to complete. Of course, it was always a part-time thing. Um, but, um, uh, I've, I've just from a very early age juggled a number of different interests and journalism was one of them. Hmm. Well, we're, we're blessed by that because you've turned out some great products. This one, uh, included, uh, this is thank you, Paul. That's uh, kind of you to say. Well, it's a, it's it's my privilege to do it and to tell more people about this book. It's uh, Scalia: Rise to Greatness. We've been talking with James Rosen. He's the chief uh, White House correspondent for Newsmax, and uh, he's working on volume two. When is that due out? It's due out two years from now. I have impetus to finish it quickly because uh, the only person displeased by the extension of this book from its origin as a concise biography into a mammoth two-volume set was Mrs. Rosen, who with some, uh, some justification resented the two-year extension on Justice Scalia's lease on the lives of the Rosens. Um, so I'm aiming to finish it uh, and to be returned to this program with you to discuss it by fall 2025. Well, we'll count on that. And uh, are you enjoying the second part more than the first? It's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a tougher challenge from a literary point of view because the first volume, which ends with Justice Scalia 
literally being applauded in the Supreme Court courtroom as he takes his seat, was a was a, a, a was a, a a life arc or a trajectory, if you will. What a life um, that was more inherently dramatic. A man is climbing a, a mountain. Will he get to the pinnacle or not? Uh, once he gets to the Supreme Court, you know he serves 29 terms there, and there's controversy and there's relationships with the other justices and. Um, there's the cases and the opinions, but really it's, it's a bit more challenging for the dramatist, if you will, to, to find the through line in a life where the last 30 years are spent basically in the same job. Hmm. Well, we're looking forward already to the next book, and uh, thanks for joining us today, James. Um, we will uh, see you next week uh, for What a Life. I'm Paul Batura. Hope you have a great Sunday. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.